Bibles this morning and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 together. Those hymns in God's good providence, I'm sure, ministered to hurting hearts who we've already had on the platform this morning. I know they must have. Hurting hearts for those in our flock who I know of at least one here this morning continues to worship for the first time in their life without their spouse. I hope we never, and I don't think we will, but by God's grace, I hope we never lose sight of the importance of the doctrinal truth in the songs that we sing and that we own that doctrinal truth and that you understand increasingly as we grow in Christ's likeness that as you sing those hymns, God's called each of us to be teachers. That when you sing those hymns, you're actually instructing those around you who can hear your voice in good doctrine. The truth of God's faithfulness, just as Pastor Hobie and Seth just did for us, they instructed our hearts in song and uh, continue to own that. I think our congregation does more and more own the importance of ministering to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, Often I think we could have invitations to get our hearts right with the Lord just after the doctrine that we hear when we sing, long before we preach, and that's the way it should be. But let's continue on this morning as we pray, and then we'll commence our way into understanding God's word on this Lord's Day. Father, help us. We come before you with clean hands and pure hearts, desiring omnipotence to have its way in our hearts by the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Do that now, Lord, as we study your word and commit our lives to following it, living it out each day of the week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. On this Father's Day, I want to highlight three ways you dads can settle and guide your home in a way that would bring increased stability and spiritual progress to every soul that lives under the roof of your home. There's a statement in the Old Testament that little Jewish children were to say, as their last sentence of their day before they drifted off to sleep, and they would say that first sentence again as soon as they woke up the next morning. Twice a day, 365 days a year, for the whole of the Jewish child's life in their parents' home, this statement would be quoted, and the commitment to the statement was to lend itself then to faithful living in a God-centered life. In other words, the truth of this statement was to compel the hearts of the Jewish children to walk and to please God by obeying God's voice and his word all the days of their youth. Jewish history teaches that these grown children would be married and then teach their children the same sentence, spoken at the same times and in the same way while their children were in their homes. And this sentence became an ornate spiritual tapestry on the hearts of all Jewish children's 
existences. As they all became adults and then parents became empty nesters, this quotation would continue to be the daily part of everyone's speaking routine. And to be certain, this statement would be spoken and owned each day all the way until each Jewish soul would breathe their last on earth. And then Jewish tradition teaches us that every faithful follower of God would make sure this divine sentence would be the last sentence they would speak on earth before they drew their last breath. These compelling words are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. This is commonly referred to as the Shema of Israel. Jewish tradition teaches that in time, the Shema expanded to include not just this sentence in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, but also a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 11 and Numbers chapter 15. Jesus was taught as a boy to follow along with the same bedtime routine and morning speaking of the Shema. In his public ministry, he grew up and spoke these words, the words of Deuteronomy 6 and passages such as Mark 12 and Luke 10. He would speak the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God, O Israel. And then the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. This phrase was the foundation to all good doctrine and living for the Jewish people from their homes forward, and we'll certainly see that in our passage today. Remember, men, Moses is preparing a nation who had come out of tumultuous times in Egypt, had endured 40 years of rugged and turbulent, uncertain wilderness wandering in order to enter an unfamiliar land which God would ask them to conquer. They would do this without the generation of those who led them through the wilderness. They would do this without Moses. They lived in humanly uncertain times, but the divine certainty in which they lived remained unchanged because their God remained unchanged and his covenant loyalty to his people forever remains unchanged. God's people were often distracted in the wilderness. You know that if you know your Bibles well. The distractions often led to a falling away from the truth, the truth statement of the Shema of Israel that they grew up quoting day and night. Dads, we live in a very turbulent time, an incessant time of distraction, as if the information age, like a tsunami, wasn't distracting enough, then comes C-19, and if C-19 wasn't distracting enough to further distract our children away to loyalty to their God and their Savior, then comes social unrest, and in many places, disorder. And now our children's mind can be paralyzed with distraction, including emotions, even the emotions of fear, abject fear, and anger. Listen to the Jewish rabbi in California, just outside Los Angeles, as he explains the importance of the Shema to his flock. Shema Israel calls upon us no matter what our notion of God is to listen up. That's what the Hebrew word Shema is. Listen up. 
to what God requires of us. And since the Hebrew word Shema, he goes on to say, is much more than just about simply auditory function, since Shema means to actually pay attention and understand as well, that even the atheist Jews among us are called upon by this Shema to at least wrestle with a notion of God and believe. And then we are urged to put into action whatever we understand it is that God requires of us. We're to love God fully and at all times and in every place as we do so by deeds. That is the mitzvot, even if, as Reformed Jews, he says, our acceptance of mitzvot, this is the daily obligation and the duty of a faithful Jew, is done selectively and with modern updating. Even in a place where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not preached, there's a call even to pagans, to atheists, to listen up and to consider who God is and then to love him and then to obey him. The rabbi just called upon even atheistic Jews and nominal Jews in his own congregation to consider hearing and adhering to the Shema and allowing the conviction of the Shema to compel them to good deeds and abiding by the Torah as best they could during their week. Dads, we must know our God and we must know our Bibles more than we know our platforms, more than we know our ideologies, more than we know our politics, and even better than we know our personal vocations with which we've been educated to perform for the rest of our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 6 outlines for us in just a handful of verses three realities that need to be in our lives as leaders of our homes. And by the way, ladies, youth, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? Everyone is to own these realities by the help of the Spirit of God. Now, I understand in our context, we're enemies of God until we're restored to fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. I hope you've been restored to God in Jesus Christ. As you have been, you've been indwelt by omnipotence, the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God helps you. He lends his aid, his help from heaven unto these realities in our lives, okay? And I'm telling you kids, right, herein is good success. Only herein is good success. Remember these three words as we go along this morning. Remember the word conviction. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. That's the Shema of Israel. We're going to consider the passion that is to accompany that conviction in verses 5 and 6. And then we'll conclude this morning with interaction. An interaction around that good doctrine, that conviction, and that good passion, that love for God. And how do we interact inside the home about these things and how do we make sure that these things are the primary things of every one of our homes? We'll talk about that as we continue on this morning. First of all, conviction. We've read verse 4. 
A.W. Tozer, many of you are familiar with that author, he said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What was the primary doctrinal reality the faithful Jew of the Old Testament would always think first? We've already recited it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. Listen up, Israel. Listen up, spiritual Israel, especially. Listen up, dads of the New Testament era. The Lord is our God in Christ, and he is one. We would say Moses prioritized what we would call today theology proper, the study of the person and the character and the work of God himself. A comprehensive understanding of all these things that are God and what he does and what he is and what he desires. Dad, what comes to mind first when you think of God? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of God? And that's the most important thing about you right now. Is the Lord your God? David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. No, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you own the God of heaven as your God, your personal God? Or is he just still remain for you an abstract reality or a non-reality? Is the Lord your God? Is he the God of your children? What do you know about this God? Do you know his names? Do you know anything about how he created our world that we live in? Do you know the calling of his people, the nation of Israel, through their father Abraham? Do you know his working among the Jewish people in Egypt and in the wilderness wandering? Do you know of his faithfulness to the people of Israel in the conquest of the promised land? Do you know of his patience in these times of Israel's rebellion in the Old Testament? And do you know of his timely justice upon the enemies of his elect people? Do you know the promises of God to his people? Do you know what grieves the heart of God? Do you know how his justice and mercy are both meted out in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Do you even know that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh from the line of David, the Jewish line, who lived perfectly the law of Moses because he was God? And because he was God in human flesh and lived perfectly the law of Moses... He obligated himself to surrender himself to will of the Father to become obedient even unto the death of the cross for your sin and my sin. Why? Because obedience, perfect obedience, would much rather have you brought back to fellowship with God than you forever estranged from God. That's what obedience does. That's what love does through obedience, especially the divine obedience of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. 
So that's conviction. Do you have a guttural conviction to know who God is? By beginning with the question, is he my God? Is he my God? Remember we said earlier that this conviction could be merely intellectual. Or it could be volitional. It could become the lifestyle of anyone who quoted this sentence when they drifted off to sleep and quoted it again when they first woke up all the way to quoting it faithfully their lives until they made it the last sentence they would speak before they met their creator. Are you intellectually energized by the concept of God? Or are you personally empowered by the Spirit of God to know him and to live him and to love him. Spiritual Israel, the New Testament local church believer, he's our God. And he's one. It ought to be our life's ambition to think much about him, to think often about him, to explore him to learn of him as our first reality our first obligation of our existence every day every day so what comes to our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us that's to be our conviction what about our passion? Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. B.B. Warfield and his systematic theology in relationship to theology proper and theology in general said this, when we consider the surpassing glory of the subject matter with which theology deals, it would appear that if ever science existed for its own sake, it might surely be true of this science. The truths concerning God and his relations are above all comparison in themselves the most worthy of all truths of study and examination. Yet we must vindicate a further goal for the advance of theology and thus contend for it that it is an eminent, eminently practical science. The contemplation and the exhibition of Christianity as truth is far from the end of the matter. Truth is specially communicated by God of himself for a purpose for which is admirably adapted. That purpose is to save and to sanctify the soul. And the discovery, study, and systemization of the truth is in order that firmly grasping it and thoroughly comprehending it, it in all its reciprocal relations, we may be able to make the most efficient use of it for its holy purpose. The passion of our lives is to live the conviction of our lives, of who God is to us. We have no theology if we don't have a way to live God. And the way we begin living God is by first learning to love God. 
Jesus said that, didn't he? If you love me, you will do what? Mitzvot. You will keep my Father's commandments. A passion for God gives way to a study of God, which gives way to living God. As Moses prepares the second generation to enter the promised land, he makes sure Deuteronomy consists of three primary emphases as you study that fifth book of the law. Absolute total devotion to God, number one. A warm, unselfish compassion for God's creation and all that's in it, and purity from all that is worldly and ungodly. But its primary focus for the second generation about to enter the promised land in uncertain times is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. You must love him. But you must first know him in Jesus Christ before you can love him. And can I tell you this? The grace of God will, I assure you, I guarantee it, based on the authority of God's word, when you know Jesus Christ, he places you into love with God. The Spirit of God places you into Christ, and I assure you, Christ is one with the Father and has great passion for the Father and great love for the Father. So as you know him, you will too. Dad, do your children know God and do they love him? Have you intellectually stimulated their mind as to who God is? And have you called on their hearts to love him? Are those even interactions in your home? Discussions? Not lectures? Not pulpit pounding? Discussions? Is it ridiculously obvious to the children in your home that you are absolutely in love with your God? So much so that you talk about him all the time. Again, how much do you speak of him with fondness and affection? Do your children ask you questions about him because they respect your love for him and know your love has compelled you to know much of him? How about discipling in our church, regardless of fatherhood? Does the person you're leading in the scriptures know you love God that much, and you speak of him that much, and they know his governance of your life that much, where they're free to ask you any question about him as they continue to explore who he is in their own life? People who are following other believers will naturally ask questions about that person's God if they know that person loves God and knows God. Do your children believe you love God just because you go to church or because they see you love him? They hear you talk about him in the home. They watch you live your love for him under your own roof, and they see you interact and share his love in the community. Again, regardless of father, man, woman, child, are you that kind of light for God in your own existence? 
As we said, Deuteronomy establishes a theology of the heart. Moses develops this theology by first stating his heart is best helped when it has a passion for God. One author said, to love the Lord with all one's being is man's supreme obligation. And 12 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, that supreme obligation is detailed. Think of this passage this way. Chapter 6 and verse 5 summarizes all that is written by Moses in verses 1 through 3. In other words, verses 1 through 3 explains the lifestyle of those who passionately love God. Let's read those together. Verse 1, now this is the commandment. The statutes and the judgments with the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might, what? Be active. Live them. Do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son, you and your grandson, might fear the Lord your God to keep all of the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days might be prolonged, O Israel. You should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is why Christ said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we love God? We already said we love God by obeying God. And we only obey God if we first love God and we've owned him as our own in Jesus Christ. So we could say a passionate life lived for God is a result of one who has a passion for God. Moses goes on to teach in verse 6 these words, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Would verses 5 and 6 be a call to salvation maybe for the children of Israel who had yet to have their hearts turned from stone to hearts of flesh? I believe Moses has clearly stated here that the hearts of stone needed to become hearts of flesh for fathers and for children, for all the nation of Israel, before they could begin to comprehend and live the Bible as stated already here in verses 1 through 3 and the whole second giving of the law, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. He's stating their hearts must be right with God in salvation in order to live what is right in God's word and according to God's word. The words spoken of God will be on the hearts of God's children if they are indeed transformed by grace and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Without a born-again experience, it's impossible to carry the word of God with us and apply it to life. So this is to be the passion. Maybe you need to today begin a love relationship with God. And trust his sacrifice for your sin, Jesus Christ. And own him as your savior so he can bring you back into fellowship with God. So that you can learn God as you love God so you can live God. So this is the conviction. This is the passion. 
And now verses 7 and 8 speaks of interaction. How do we take this conviction and passage, passion and, and use it? Let's read verses 7 and 8 as we close this morning. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Herbert Wolf has a tremendous volume on the Pentateuch, and he says this regarding this text. To underscore the importance of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 and other similar exhortations, Moses urged the people to use every means possible. Every means possible. to teach these commandments to their children. Whether at home or walking along the road, parents were encouraged to talk to their children constantly about God and constantly about what he requires. As a physical reminder to ensure discussion of God and what he required throughout the day, the Jews would write this text Texts like Exodus 13, 1 to 16, other texts like Exodus 11, 13 to 21 on parchment, they would roll those little pieces of parchment up, place it in small leather pouches, tie it to their left arm and to their foreheads, and in time, even to the doorposts of the entrance to their homes, in constant reminder of the loving and passionate way God's people are to live for him in their homes and in their communities. Unfortunately, those little leather pouches, which became known in your Bibles as phylacteries in the New Testament, those who would try to live the law of Moses without making God their God in salvation would wear those pouches on their arms and on their foreheads, and they would put them on the doorposts of their home just for religious show. And you know what religious show is? It's saying, I own God, I own the Bible, but I cannot live him, and I cannot live his word. That's all religion is. Religion is, 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 the, is the loud proclamation that I know a lot about God, but I cannot live him because I do not know him. Therefore, I cannot know his word. But in the early days, all this was well-motivated, and this was a methodology to make sure that when they woke up, when they walked by the way, when they lied down, they were constantly reminded to love God and to live God. Faithful parents found creative ways to make sure their children's lives were daily saturated with the Scripture. We could say living Scripture was to be their lifestyle, and the parents were to lead the way as they faithfully functioned within the community of faith in the Mosaic family. Why would this be so important? Well, they're getting ready to move into a new land as a second generation without their forefathers. God, if I could say this, is all who they had. 
and his word. And if they lived by it, they would know his blessings and his protection. So daily dialogue about the word of God opened up discussions regarding how to live. And in the Jewish community, there was no pathway forward in their world without discussions and applications of the book of the law of Moses. For the Jew, it was possible to live in fellowship with God. It was impossible to live in fellowship with God without a new heart, a heart of flesh, and not of stone, and a deep and wide conversation, continual conversation, on how the law of Moses applied to every aspect of daily living. For us, similar passages such as, such as 2 Peter 1.3, James 1.25, if you want to write those down, John 17.17 17, would echo in a New Testament context what Deuteronomy 6 taught. God's word is an all-sided reality, spiritual gift to us when it comes to daily living. There's nothing our children's lives see and experience every day that the Bible does not speak to. Think of this. Matthew 4, Jesus is having a conversation with Satan himself. Do you remember? Dad, do you want to help your kids fight temptation? They've got to know God through Jesus Christ, and then they've got to know his word, because if they don't know his word and the God of the word comprehensively, deeply, continually, incessantly, they will not know how to fight temptation. They will crash and burn when it comes knocking on their doorstep. Even Jesus, perfect God and perfect man, as fully man and fully God, knew this. So Matthew 4, he's in the wilderness tempted by Satan. How did he contend with the fury of this strong temptation? He quoted before Satan himself three verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In addition, Jesus used Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God to let the devil know he had been raised as a Jewish boy in a faithful Jewish home by godly parents. Joseph and Mary taught the Shema to Jesus. Jesus knew the law of Moses. He knew man could not exist well without knowing God's word and being able to apply it to everyday situations in life. Here for Jesus Christ, even temptation. When Satan asks Jesus to consider throwing himself down from the highest point in the temple, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would just bow down before him, Jesus responded, You worship the Lord your God, and you serve him only. Jesus succeeded in his time of temptation because he knew how to apply the word of God to a godly lifestyle. This is something even the first generation of Jews in the wilderness wandering had the obligation to choose to do or not do. And they blew it. Even Moses. So let me ask you this, parents. Do you have a word-saturated, God-saturated home? Is there much talk of him? Is there much talk of his word? Not just in formal settings, 
but when your kids wake up, when they walk by the way, and when they lie down. Is God popular in your home? Is his word well spoken of as you're in your home? Do you share of your love for God to your children even by the way you live? And do they know how much of his word you know because you're able to, at a moment's notice, apply his word to your life? Have you told them how you've failed God and how you've righted your life and how you now move forward by God's word as you love God? Can I ask you this? Have you taught your children to memorize the Bible so they know it well? So even when they're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade? My first interaction with pornography was kindergarten in a Christian school. My dad wasn't around. How do you handle that? Do your children know that you've memorized the Bible? Do they know it because you can quote its truths and they see you living its truths? Are your children armed to step increasingly away from your authority as they're reared in the context of your homes and be prepared to be in the world and to fight its allurements and deal with its enticements in a way that God would have them do so? Never before, dads, has there been a generation of children being raised up who have been inundated with optical temptation. What your children see and what they read is like a 24-7, 365 tsunami of optical realities in people's lives. The older they get, the more they see and the more they hear. And you know what I'm talking about. Parents of youth, have you scripturally prepared your children to learn how to post or guard their eyes in relationship to Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, and others? Has the Bible even been discussed in relationship with what your child posts? Do you even see what your child posts? Have you been able to help them, guide them? Or is it the reality in your home that when you dive into your child's phone, they get really possessive and they get really angry because they own that as their property? In my home, when that discussion comes up, I say, okay, then you can start paying the bill next month. And things get real quiet real fast. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. He's one. As for me and my home, we're going to serve the Lord. He's good. He's loving. He's brought us back into union with this person for all of eternity in Jesus Christ. He's worth knowing about, and he wants us to understand him so we know how to live him. And my friends, I will tell you, I believe personally 
that the tsunami of divine information coming into our lives ought to equal the tsunami of worldly information inundating our lives. Look at the Old Testament story. When they stopped doing this throughout the day, when they woke up, when they walked by the way, when they lied down, when they stopped doing that, that's when they began to alter. Not perfectionism, just progress. Are your children armed with the arsenal of Scripture where they can fend off any kind of temptation? Do they at least know where and how to run to you to get Bible help? And you lead them to God and His Word for their spiritual survival. Comprehensive interaction about the Bible and how it applies to life must be the reality of every Christian home before and after our children come to know salvation in Jesus Christ. These words here in Deuteronomy 6, if you want to write in the margin of your Bible, are again stated in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 to 23. Over and over and over, the passion of God through the pen of Moses and through the mouth of Moses is don't ever stop talking about God who you love and how much he loves you and how much good he wants for you according to his character. Don't ever stop. The world has an agenda of communication, doesn't it? The world plans out weeks and years in advance, tactically plans out what it's going to communicate, how it's going to communicate, and where it communicates. I think we need to do the same thing in our homes. Whether they have children or not. As faithful believers. One thing we did as children in Christian education was memorize and memorize and memorize. We would quote and quote and requote scripture after scripture, even in the form of competitions and for letter grades and Bible classes. Thousands of Bible passages, hang on, parents, thousands of Bible passages were burned into our souls so we could at any moment utilize those words from God to help us fight temptation, make right decisions, and be passionate about worshiping God with integrity in all of our lives. But many today are choosing alternate forms of Christian education, and that's fine. That's between you and God. But Deuteronomy 6 is what it is. James 25, 125 is what it is. John 17, 17 is what it is. The whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 6 is what it is. We've got to know it so that we can live it. When I was growing up, we would memorize and memorize and memorize and memorize. Chapters at a time. God divinely used that. But when I was growing up, something else wasn't really happening as passionately as it is happening here now. Right? I didn't interact about Scripture much in my home. The way my parents were taught ministry was it was a job, and you had to work hard at that job. And praise God for working hard at any job. That's what God requires us to do. But when they were done, they were so tired, it was very, very difficult for them to continue on interacting over the scriptures together. 
So I knew a lot of Bible. It wasn't until I was later in my high school years when I was going through all my sports injuries and all my college sports opportunities God was taking away where my dad finally came and he came to me and apologized and he said, you know a lot of the Bible, but I haven't led you in it and along with it much in your life. Will you forgive me? 16-year-old kid forgiving his dad who's a pastor? But I knew. I knew the reality. He hadn't. From that moment forward, we had the most special relationship all the way until he passed away. Because he invited me into his life to learn God and to live God. Have you invited your children into your life to love God, know God, and live God? Now we have the opportunity to take advantage of the great value of being word-saturated together passionate together, convictional, passionate, and then interactively working together for God. Making the Bible, making God and his word a centerpiece on our homes is a non-negotiable. Interactive reality, as we move forward in Christ's likeness, in a world that's dominated by Satan himself. This is how our children are developed, to have great compassion for souls who need the Savior. If there's no pattern of consistent righteous development in our homes according to the Scriptures, then when our children go out and experience the world, there's no compare and contrast. Why do our children so quickly get absorbed in the world and worldliness? Because they really didn't have an opportunity to have formulated in their mind a doctrinal ethic of God and a lifestyle of living Him. So when they go into the world, they may have known a lot intellectually, but they didn't have a passionate desire for Him, maybe didn't even know Him. And so when the world meets them at the intersection of life, they jump in its car and they go. They go. If there's no pattern of consistent righteousness development in our homes according to the scriptures, then our children go out, they get inundated, they get eaten up. And you say, God, I exposed them to so much Bible. How could this happen? Interaction. Passion, conviction, interaction. Did you live it with them? Now, my friends, I know a majority of you are just doing a fantastic job with this. Praise God, keep it up. Don't grow weary in well doing. For parents who aren't, for husbands who aren't with their wives, for single parents who haven't yet with their children, remember it's never too late to do right. God, the Spirit of God, would love to throw himself behind your repentance. And you're asking your family or your spouse or souls under your roof their forgiveness. And they, he would love to support spiritual change, transformation in your home, so it's never too late to do the right thing.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of your word. Lord, these fundamental truths, may they sound like beautiful chorus, choruses, refrains in our hearts and minds of conviction, of passion, and of interaction. And with all of the uncertainty and unrest that you said would come in the world that you created that's fallen because of sin, in the midst of all of this noise outside of us, may we know the peace and the love and the settledness and the very character of God in our homes. That we may know his word together, 24-7, 365, together so that we can go into our world together and be light. Where the compare and contrast is easy for both us and the world to make about us that they might see our good works and come to glorify our Father who is in heaven. May our light so shine. I beg you, God, by your mercy that you would continue to develop generation after generation after generation here at Grace Church of Mentor unto that end according to this text. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. And we thank you in your mercy for preserving for us bread from heaven and the word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.